Welcome to another episode of Locked in Science, where we are your Lost in Science team who are all locked in our house due to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. Claire and Stu, how are you guys going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Keeping busy. Not too bad, Chris. Excellent. Now, we have a couple of great stories from two of you today. Uh, Claire, what have you got for us? Uh, yeah, Chris, well, I am, um, I've got my first ever locked in interview um, with Dr. Paul Birch, who's the Science Director of Land and Water at CSIRO. And um, Paul's going to be talking to us today a bit about a breakthrough that CSIRO and the University of Queensland have made, um, all about detecting coronavirus in sewage and what that means for how um, how we can, I guess, trace the coronavirus and how we know how much of it is out there. Uh, amazing. So it is actually transmitted through sewage. Um, the toilet paper buying was legit <laughs> after all. Is this what you're saying? Well, what I'm, what maybe not entirely. Um, I guess we'll have to uh, ask Paul about that. But it's more about um, that coronavirus. Um, the virus is actually shed through a couple of ways. So you can, you know, you sneeze it out, you cough it out, but it also comes out through your fecal matter. And it comes out through your fecal matter um, three days, uh, around three days after you're exposed to it. So that could be a lot earlier than you start showing symptoms. So if you think, I guess, where your uh, feces go after you flush them down the toilet and that's sort of like everybody in your neighborhood's feces, and then you sample those feces scientifically, you can start to um, start to work out a little bit about what is happening uh, with that disease and that virus in that neighborhood. Great. Well, look, I do regret not putting a bit of a content warning on that before we launch into talking about feces, but I'm looking forward to hearing what uh, Paul Birch has to say. Uh, Stu, how about you? Uh, well, look, I'm just glad I wasn't in the middle of my dinner right there, but... Um... It's not the only science that's going on in the middle of this, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not quite a global lockdown, but there is a lot of people not going about their normal business. And that has allowed a lot of scientists in different fields a very unique position to observe things they wouldn't normally be able to observe. So I'm going to actually have a look at um, some of the science that people are actually able to do as a result of people being locked down that they can't necessarily normally do and observing things they can't uh, normally observe. So, um, you know, taking advantage of the situation uh, to do things that they probably wouldn't be allowed, you know, probably wouldn't be able to get permission to do if they wanted to do them other times. It's all legal though, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's just a result of people... Um, uh, not being around, pretty much. Um, is this a little bit about sort of like, you know, looking at dolphins showing up in Venice and that sort of thing, Stu? Oh, uh, look, uh, there's a little bit of that going on, but there's uh, there's there's some actual um, real scientific discoveries happening as well. Well, fantastic. Looking forward to hearing about that. Now, I don't have a full story for you guys today, but I just want to highlight something some news that Australians COVID-19 research news you may have missed. This is um, some people that um, that I've worked with are involved in. 
Uh, it is an effort to create some clinical guidelines for how to manage uh, COVID-19. Now, we've covered some of the research coming out, you know, some of the treatments and things, and there's a lot of confusing stuff. There's a lot of studies being rushed out, and it's very difficult from that to know what people should do with it, you know, what actually works and what is uh, verified. So this is an Australian effort to create some guidelines that uh, medical professionals can use in their management of patients with COVID-19. The exciting thing about it, though, is that these are what we call living guidelines. Now, um, to explain what this is, now, some of you may know that my day job, I work for the Stroke Foundation. And we have a project that we've been working on for a couple of years, which is to create uh, clinical guidelines that are living in that they're constantly updated as new research comes in. So our plan is to update them uh, every month, do new research for new search for new published papers every month. Uh, we're helped by Cochrane Australia in doing searching for research. So it's something that, yeah, we've been working on for a couple of years. They're the same team. Some of the same people from Cochrane now have jumped with this idea and have using this on the COVID-19 pandemic, and they are updating their guidelines every week, which is quite a remarkable, intensive effort. Uh, they have guidelines up there now. They're very interesting. I should say this whole thing is supported by the federal government. They have $1.5 million funding through the um, the Medical Research Future Fund. That's made it possible. Um, but yeah, look, it's a world-leading thing. Hopefully other countries will be able to use it as well. Um you can go online at covid19evidence.net.au to see the kind of things they're looking at. You know, we discussed stuff like the, um, remember we just, a couple of weeks ago I spoke about the hydroxychloroquine, whether that works or not. They've done an assessment of the research so far on that. And obviously it's not proven yet. And that's what their guidelines reflect. But as the new research comes in, they'll continue to update uh, what the recommendations are. So it is actually quite an exciting project to give some reliable um yeah, research that can be trusted. Blokes you can trust. Blokes you can trust. Look, anyway, I just thought we should tell you all about that. But in the meantime, we have a lot of other coronavirus-related work to get to. So on with the show. So our guest today is part of the team developing a new way to detect coronavirus in the community through testing sewage. To talk to us all about how testing our toilet waste will give us a better understanding of coronavirus and ultimately make us safer, I am joined today by Science Director of Land and Water at CSIRO, Dr. Paul Birch. Paul, welcome to Lost in Science. Uh, thanks, Claire. It's uh, nice to be with you. So apart from hoarding toilet paper, the link between sewage and coronavirus might not be immediately obvious. What can sewage tell us about coronavirus? Well, Claire, individuals that are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, shed the virus which in their feces, which then can be detected in wastewater. Uh, and that uh, allows us uh, an early warning surveillance capability uh, of actually looking at the and estimating the number of infected cases in a catchment or certainly at a population or, or community scale. Do people shed this virus immediately? Does it happen when they have symptoms? Yeah, so that's a re really good question. Both patients with symptoms as well as asymptomatic uh, patients shed the virus, which makes it a, quite a powerful tool because, as you know, there's uh, significant data emerging that a, a large proportion 
of affected individuals, uh, studies ranging from 30% all the way up to 75% are asymptomatic, which is a real challenge in terms of managing this particular virus. And so uh, both individuals that have symptoms and asymptomatic ones uh, shed the virus. In terms of when they start, there is some data uh, that suggests that uh, shedding begins as early as three days following infection. Oh, wow. Uh, which yeah, so, so it's also potentially quite sensitive relative to other ways. Uh, so, so for example, as you know, most individuals uh, on average don't begin to express symptoms until after five, oftentimes after seven days. Mm. Uh, so they would be shedding the virus during that period. And, and so it would be likely that they would not be tested under our guidelines currently because they would be showing those symptoms. Yep. So, yeah, so again, this would be a way to actually detect individuals uh, at an early stage as well. Not individuals, but uh, individuals within a population, because you're really looking at a population or community level. Right, um, yeah. Infection. yeah. So this sounds very much like, um, you know, not only are you getting, by testing, you know, sewage and fecal matter, you're, you're looking at early detection, but then also you're looking at, because I guess everybody poops, as the, um, as the children's book suggests, you're looking at and, and sampling quite a large proportion of the population as well. Yeah, that's that's correct. That's correct. And and uh, in this particular study, which was a proof of concept study, the samples were taken at the influent of a wastewater treatment plant, uh, two wastewater treatment plants. Uh, so uh, there were quite large uh, numbers of individuals represented in terms of integrating uh, those samples. So it was in the greater Brisbane area. You're looking at between the two uh, sewage treatment plants. You're looking at uh, approximately 600,000 individuals. Wow. So, but in principle, you can go up pipe. Uh, so you could go and sample further upstream, uh, which in principle would allow you to get to a postcode level, for example. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's a good time to start talking about the, um, the research between CSIRO and the University of Queensland. So you, you said that um, so far you're up to a proof of concept. Yeah, tell us a little bit about what you've, what you've done so far and how you've been detecting um, the SARS-CoV-2 um, coronavirus in, in sewage. Sure. So, Claire, just to be clear, I'm, I'm actually not uh, a member of the team. Uh, so the uh, teams are uh, a deep collaboration between UQ and, and CSIRO scientists. Uh, I'm just the spokesperson for, for the CSIRO part of the work. And I do have background in uh, actually looking at various uh, components in wastewater. In fact, many decades ago, we began to look at uh, antibiotics in wastewater. Wastewater surveillance is, is actually not new. Uh, and in fact, so UQ's role, a very important role, um, is they lead the uh, National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Program for the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission. Right. And so they already have a national network of wastewater treatment plants where they actually look for drugs. Wastewater uh, surveillance for, for viruses is not new either. So there's uh, a number of uh, uh, instances like the polio virus, for example. Uh, surveillance has been done for many years. The Israelis have a very advanced system in terms of routine analysis, looking at various viruses, hepatitis, uh, polio virus, et cetera. So, so, so this isn't new. And the teams got together very quickly, uh, understanding that, number one, UQ had this network already in place. Uh, CSRO had the uh, molecular biology uh, capability. So, so what we're actually measuring, uh, or what the teams are measuring, are gene fragments from, from the virus. Right. Uh, so, so viruses, unlike uh, most other organisms, can, 
genome is encoded with DNA or RNA. And this particular virus has an RNA encoded genome. And so looking for a specific gene fragment from the virus, I, I suspect a lot of your, your listeners um, are going to be familiar with these crime uh, dramas and, and crime shows where yeah. DNA analysis is conducted. So traces of DNA are brought in, they're put into a quantitative uh, PCR machine, which is really just a way of conducting molecular photocopying. So you get small amounts of DNA in the case of uh, the crime scene, uh, and then you amplify it or just make many copies, millions of copies of it so that you can actually see the signal of the DNA above the background. In this case, it's, it's RNA, so it has an extra step. Before we can use the quantitative PCR that uh, a lot of your listeners are going to be familiar with from these crime shows, we have to transcribe the information from the RNA, the code, and make it into DNA. It's called complementary DNA because the uh, molecular photocopier uh, actually photocopies DNA. And so once that's done, uh, you can actually then detect specific gene fragments above all, all the noise because you can imagine there's many, many viruses and mm. bacteria and everything else in, in wastewater. So it's quite specific, and it's it's also what the team did was uh, to, to do full sequencing just to validate that the PCR amplified products were, in fact, the gene fragment. And the team was successful in, in isolating the RNA, in doing the reverse transcriptase PCR, and then, and then figuring out that there was actually coronavirus in those samples. Yeah, that's correct. They, they detected uh, coronavirus uh, at two different sampling dates. So they, they had a range of sampling dates. Uh, and the two different sampling dates that, where they got positives uh, were actually co coincided with the uh, uh, peak of um, known cases in Queensland. Right. Um, so now that you've got this proof of concept, what are going to be the next steps for the research team? Well, the aim is to really try to roll something out nationally. Um, so that we would have a national network uh, that would be doing this surveillance monitor. And uh, so, so the teams uh, are working uh, to develop a plan for, for uh, what that might look like. And again, tapping into the existing uh, network around the uh, wastewater drug monitoring program uh, is a very effective way um, to get this going quickly. Uh, there certainly is a capability around Australia that to isolate the virus, to extract the RNA, and, and do the RT, PCR. That could be mobilized quickly, and, and we believe, you know, within a month or so, uh, we could have a national network that would be monitoring wow. SARS-CoV-2 in, in, in wastewater. What do you see as the greatest benefits to public health for this sort of wastewater surveillance? Yeah, well, there, there's a number of benefits. So one, as you know, is that uh, the number of actual individuals that are tested um, is lower than we, we would hope, just because, obviously, the number of tests that are available were uh, requiring uh, individuals to express uh, symptoms before they're actually tested. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, asymptomatic uh, cases being a fairly large proportion is problematic in this case uh, because obviously those individuals would never be tested. So really uh, being able to get this kind of surveillance um, uh, information uh, and get it early uh, will be really important for um, for health professionals making decisions, it's going to be really important for us to understand the efficacy of public health interventions, uh, such as um, social distancing. Uh, and for me, I think a really important part of this is going to be in the recovery phase. So you can imagine the tensions between trying to get the economy back uh, and so easing some of the restrictions going forward, but at the same time wanting to obviously protect 
public health and making sure that infections stay below a threshold that you know, doesn't overwhelm our systems. And so this, this type of uh, surveillance will be quite useful in that regard. So as we begin to move back and ease, this kind of surveillance could go on and tell us if prevalence is beginning to increase again and uh, reaching a threshold that we'd want to gear back, for example. And so this, this would be a, a very important tool for public health professionals in making those uh, assessments going forward. And is there a challenge um, how you quantify the amount of the coronavirus that you find in wastewater and then I guess figuring out what that means in terms of infections in the community? Yeah, so that's a really good question. It's it's in the early stages. And so because the scientific community is just learning more and more about this particular virus, these kinds of assessments, uh, the epidemiological uh, predictions will get better. So right now, the uncertainty is is quite large just because of things we don't know uh, about the virus. So for example, exactly how much virus is shed by an average infected individual, uh, you know, all that type of information is, is emerging in real time. We're just one group of several in the world uh, that have been actually conducting this work. In the Netherlands, there was some early work done which actually detected the virus in a community that had, at the time, had uh, no individuals that had tested positive. Mm. Uh, so showing the power of this. Wow. Uh, in, in, in Massachusetts, in, uh, outside of Boston, in a uh, suburb, there was uh, this analysis was done. And, and look, they estimated that there were 2,300 to 115,000 uh, individuals that were infected. So you can see that range is large, and, mm-hmm. and that'll get better uh, over time. But the 2,300 would have been very, very conservative. And, and the 115,000 would have been the high estimate. Mm. Uh, but in fact, there had only been 446 confirmed cases. When wow. They actually did that analysis. So, so regardless of <laughs> having that precision, they knew the 2,300 was quite a <laughs> conservative estimate. So that's a much bigger number, obviously, than the 446. And so, so that kind of information is critical, obviously, for health professionals. In that case, for understanding... Uh, what they needed to expect and anticipate in terms of the load on their healthcare system. Do we have any understanding about how coronavirus, whether it affects drinking water, does? is there any danger to our drinking water posed by the coronavirus? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And, and no, there isn't. There's, uh, you know, drinking water is um, um, disinfected uh, for a variety of viruses and, and, and bacteria, et cetera. And, um, and so there would be no risk there. Uh, the other thing about this particular virus is it's um, it's actually quite fragile, and we wouldn't expect that it would uh, be viable uh, even uh, going through a wastewater treatment plant or even in the wastewater itself, uh, because wastewater contains um, you know a, a, a large number of surfactants. Uh, that's uh, the active ingredient in soaps, and and as you probably uh, are well aware that uh, you know just washing with surfactant disrupts and and destroys the virus. So again, we're looking at gene fragments from from the virus, not necessarily viable viruses in the in the wastewater itself. And certainly, going through the wastewater treatment plant, it would uh, it would not be viable. So so there's a um, very low likelihood of, of that uh, being a concern in wastewater, and and certainly uh, drinking water is not an issue at all. Dr. Paul Birch, many thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Good luck to you and the team at the University of Queensland and CSIRO in the coming months with the development of um, such a hugely innovative way to understand coronavirus spread through wastewater surveillance. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it and um, seeing how it can make our community safer.
Well, thank you, Claire, and um, stay safe. I'm Maggie Adairn Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. A lot of people are not working their jobs normally at the moment, and some people have no paid work to do at the moment, which means a lot of things have changed in the world, mainly to do with how people move around. Uh, And quite simply, they are doing less of it. Um, When people are moving around, they're walking a lot more, they're driving a lot less, they're traveling long distances less, and they're flying almost not at all. Um, And some industries have also shut down, and there have been noticeable effects from this. One of the most famous is, uh, as Claire mentioned earlier, the canals of Venice um, being clear for the first time in a really long time. Is that because there is no pollution now? Is that what's happened? Look, it's not directly from a lack of pollution. It's actually more to do with the fact that there's a whole lot of sediment on the bottom of these canals and the sediment gets stirred up by power boats and gondola poles taking tourists all around Venice. Or maybe it's the dolphins just, um, you know, telling us, trying to, t- trying to tell us that we're on the right track. It's the magic dolphins of Venice. Um, the, the, the reality is there's been dolphins there all along. It's just that you couldn't see them because there was so much muck being stirred up in the water. I mean, I've, I've, I've actually seen um, dolphins in the Yarra River all the way up at, uh, you know, way, way up past the port. So they do, they do come upstream even though the water's dirty. Are you sure you see dolphins in the Yarra River? Absolutely. Okay. Positive. It was not the Yarra River monster. Right. It was definitely dolphins, not otters, because we don't have otters. <laughs> it was definitely uh, cetaceans of some description. Um, so, yeah, look, the, the fish and other animals that are in the uh, canals of Venice are visible, um, and a lot of them are there all the time. It's just that you can't see them because there's all this muck being stirred up from the bottom of the canals. Um, Now, in other places, notably China, where a lot of the world's manufacturing is normally done, uh, the manufacturing's obviously wound right back. A lot of people aren't working. The factories have shut down. So air pollution is very low, and visibility has greatly improved, along with air quality. Um, Also in India... Um, Air pollution in India has dropped so much that in um, the state of Punjab in the north of India, the city of Jalandhar, uh, you can actually see the Himalayas from the city for the first time since about 30 years ago was the last time they could actually see the Himalayas from that city. And it's all because uh, the factories are all closed. Um, there's less less vehicles, less diesel engines running, and all that sort of stuff. So it is pretty amazing that you know this this level of um, or, or lack of pollution that we're experiencing at the moment is uh, allowing this kind of thing to happen. And these changes, obviously, you know, it's great for Instagram posts and news articles because you can quote the Instagram posts in the news articles. Um, but uh, some scientists are observing. Um, 
other things as a result of the slowdown they wouldn't normally have been able to do. So one of the first things that scientists noticed was that the Earth is shaking a lot less than normal. So seismologists, who are the people who measure the shaking and the movement of the Earth, uh, have reported that the amount of movement in the Earth's crust has dropped dramatically. Um, so what do you mean, the lack of movement? Is that from vehicles and things moving around? Vehicles and industry and construction and all sorts of different um, industries that are not operational at the moment um, interfere with seismology equipment because um, some of their equipment is very, very sensitive and it measures vibrations. That's all it does measure. So if a train goes past where they've got some equipment set up, it will trigger their equipment. So what they're finding basically is that um, the lack of other activity means that they their sensitive equipment is a lot more able to pick up useful information rather than a lot of background noise, which is what they normally get. Um, so without that interference, they can measure um, things like smaller earthquakes from much further away than they're normally able to. So there were one uh, seismologist was saying he could measure a, a 5.5... Uh, on the Richter scale earthquake on the other side of the planet at the moment, which he normally wouldn't be able to do. That's um that's pretty amazing because like don't they use seismologists use earthquakes from across the Earth to be able to um, probe the structure of the Earth? Well, that's exactly right. And at the moment, they're they're thinking that this uh, this um, lack of interference at the moment will allow them to make calculations based on what they're measuring at the moment, which will improve their understanding of, you know, the, the structure of the earth and uh, the, you know, the movement of vibrations through the earth's crust and things like that. So they're actually hoping um, that they will be able to, to, to figure out better ways of, of measuring the things they do measure and allow them to be able to predict earthquakes and volcanoes and things more accurately because they'll be able to measure it more accurately in the future. So, in other scientific fields, uh, lack of human activity has been of a huge benefit to biologists of all types in that animal behaviour is not being impacted so much by human behaviour. So they're seeing animals uh, much more easily and, and measuring them and, and observing them and all those sorts of things. Um, so, for example, observers of bumblebees in Europe have found that the insects can detect nectar-producing flowers more easily than normal because there's less pollution in the air which confuses the bumblebees because they find their uh, find the flowers by scent. So they're not getting their olfactory senses interrupted by, you know, car exhausts and things like that in the meantime. They might have to change their name. Maybe they can't call them bumblebees anymore. <laughs> they'll, they'll call They know where they're going. <laughs> Highly accurate bees. <laughs> Um, it also means it's a lot easier to spot and observe urban wildlife so there's a lot less other noise and movement around so animals and birds are easier to hear and spot in built-up areas and obviously more easily recorded Um, and Claire was talking about citizen science there is an Aussie backyard bird count but that's not till October Um, but if you you know sit out in your backyard and, and start observing now you'll be able to compare what you can see now with what you might see in October, and maybe we'll see some differences there. Um, now, 
Other science work that's taking advantage of people staying home is going on in France, where their National Aeronautics and Space Agency is conducting an experiment of their own, and they're using students of aeronautics who um, basically are confined to their rooms. So they are studying the effect of being in a small space for an extended period by looking at the impact on students. Does that mean they are isolating them even further than they currently are? Well, I guess this is the thing, is that they're kind of asking them to stay in their rooms, um, which they've already been asked to do, but they're basically saying, don't leave your room, we'll we'll bring you what you need to your dorm room. Um, but if they do have any sort of, you know, psychological or medical problems, they'll just pull them out of their rooms, which is a lot easier than doing it if they're in a small, tiny capsule up in space, which is basically why they're doing the research, because they're thinking about long-term journeys to, you know, to other planets, to Mars and places like that. So if they can sort of see what psychological and physiological effects it has on people, you know, stuck in one room for months at a time, um, where they can actually pull them out at any time if something does go wrong, um, that's a lot more... Um, sort of ethical experiment, I guess, to do than shooting someone up into space without knowing what's going to happen to them. But I kind of like this idea, though, that they're going to be effectively locked in their rooms anyway. In in a sense, if I can get like poetic for a second here, we are all kind of astronauts in our little capsules journeying around the sun uh, in our isolated little space trips. That's That's very true. We're all Major Tom right now, aren't we? We are, we are. Um, we just don't know where ground control is exactly at this point. No. <laughs> um, we can leave the capsule occasionally to go get more toilet paper and flour. Just as long as if it's we dare, for if we dare, or it's for going to the supermarket. <laughs> yes, or you know, make and you sure keep one and a half. You keep one and a half million kilometers from the rest of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly not that quite that distance. Um, now, look, you know, we might all feel like astronauts hurtling around the the sun, isolated from each other, but um, ongoing missions are still happening in space. Uh, and earlier in April, an astronaut and two cosmonauts docked with the International Space Station to take over from three who have since splashed down into lockdown, as it were, on the 17th of April. So... The, the normal ISS missions, International Space Station missions, they're all still going ahead as scheduled. I mean, I, I'm, not in, I'm not entirely sure that I'd, I'd be happy, you know, you'd be safe up in the International Space Station and the <laughs> mission control says, oh, we're going to send up three guys from the middle of this pandemic down here. You don't know if you'd let them dock or not. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, those, those three who were up there earlier in April have already splashed down on Earth uh, using the Soyuz craft, uh, Soyuz, sorry. Um, and they're back on Earth, and the, the three new crew are up in the space station, which, you know, again, it's a, it's a different form of isolation, I guess. So the science is still going on, and in some areas, this might be the only opportunity to collect um, certain kinds of data that could be the basis basis of research for years to come after things 
return to more normal. And these are not, you know, these are not necessarily experiments that would be possible um, were it not for the situation we're in. So in a lot of ways, science can take advantage of, uh, of the unusual situation that we're in right now. All right. That is it for another episode of Locked in Science. Locked in Science is, of course, recorded in the homes of Stu, Claire and Chris. Normally at um, 3CR, but at the moment we're at home. But we are all, I believe, on the lands of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. And we go out across Australia, the Community Radio Network, with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us if you have so, if you are so inclined. Uh, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We're also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. You can also find us on a podcast app if you had the opportunity to give us a rating and review. That's great. We love that and it helps other people to find us. Um, now we are at the end of the show. I thought to go out, I would actually play another bit of coronavirus content. Um, this is something that came out a couple of weeks ago where some scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, did a musical version of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. This basically, this music represents the crown or corona or spikes on the surface of the, the virus. It's all been turned into music, the protein structure of this virus. So we're going to go out with that. But in the meantime, you can come back next week when Stu, Claire and Chris will get... Locked. Locked in science. (laughs) We're never going to get that. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.